This is Caroline with Daily Review. And this is Paul with Daily Review. And this is Mike from Pop Culture Review. And this is the Outsider Podcast. Today we're talking about Episode 6, the one about the Yiddish Vampire. It was written by Jesse Nixon Lopez and directed by Karen Kusama. I also know her from Jennifer's Body. She directed Jennifer's Body. Really? Mm-hmm. She's a freaky deaky lady. She does horror. All right, let's start. We're going to try to go character by character this week. Uh, and we're going to start with Ralph, the king of denial. <laughs> Is he just being a dick at this point or, or, or what? I mean, I guess we're supposed to go with the idea that he legit in his bones doesn't see the connection between two drawings made by people who have nothing to do with each other that both have this hoodie and slanted mouth and, and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't see it. I don't know. It felt like a way to extend his disbelief, the amount of excuses that he was giving. What did you guys think? Agree with you completely that he's being a dick. And I don't understand his bones at all if it's that he can't see that. Two people who have nothing to gain. Like, what would his wife have to gain by saying this story? What would that boy who went out of his way to come back to the police station and tell that he did remember what the person looked like with the van? What would either of those people have anything to gain by drawing something? And then it's just a coincidence that they draw the same thing? We talked about this last week, how he how it didn't seem like he thought about it or realized it. Obviously, tonight, he very explicitly sees them together. And when he's by himself, I think there is definitely the spark of recognition in his in his eye. And he sees the connection. I think it's only when Jeannie confronts him about it and he has to give voice to it out loud is when he shuts down that part of his brain. I think it's less that he doesn't see it. And more is he is not willing to sound batshit crazy the way Holly says she is, even if it costs her being humiliated to do so. She says that to him later on. Ralph is not there yet. He's not ready to even go so far as Eunice or Alec do in this episode to, to maybe have an open mind about it. Out loud to him, I think there is a block. But I think in his quiet moment by himself, I think he definitely uh, saw the connection. I agree with you. And I also think that if he agrees that these drawings look alike, then he has to give value and worth to the warning that comes with them. And he really voiced it so dead on when he said, if this was about Derek, would you want me to stop looking? Would you want me to listen to the warning? And even Jeannie says, no, I wouldn't want you to stop. So I feel like that those two things are now linked. If I agree that these drawings look the same, then I have to heed the warning. And in that case, I would have to stop the case. And I can't. Well, I don't, I I agree with you. I don't think it was a coincidence that when Holly is there at the end and she brings up to Jeannie about the hologram or the uh, the kind of teleporting in vision of the goo man instead of him being there physically. I don't think it's a coincidence that Ralph leaves the room and goes into Derek's room where he had the Derek vision. He's very much internally trying to put this all together. What does this mean? I don't understand this. My brain can't process this, but something is here. Though, again, I don't think he's ready to say it out loud yet. Do you guys think in that case that he was talking to Derek or talking to the goo man when he was saying, was that you that I saw? Was it him? When he's talking out loud in the room, is he talking to Derek? Is he talking to Goo Man? I, think he, I thought he was talking to, to Derek. Okay. Me too. 
Me too. I agree. Because he said it pleadingly. He didn't say yes. it accusi- accusingly. If I was him and I was bridging this divide between what I thought I knew and some burgeoning eye-opening to the supernatural, I'd want to go with my son's ghost <laughs> over the goo man as, as a way to, I don't know, uh, ease the transition from being a non-believer into a believer. Yeah, I thought so too. It was interesting that he talked about that Derek vision so much this episode. I mean, the therapist kind of mandated that he talk about something. And so he talks about there, but then he also brings it up to Holly, where he could have easily deflected her when she puts him on the spot to talk about uh, what she saw. She knows that he saw something, and he could have easily kept denying it. God knows he's done it to his wife the last few episodes, been a denier. But he tells her the same vision. So I think he very much, if he's going to, like Paul Paul said, if he's going to believe in something, he's going to believe that it was his son come to him out of grief or something like that. Did it surprise you that he brought it up in therapy? It did me. Because it seemed like he was, he's only giving the therapist as much as he needs to get back to work. And so it didn't seem to serve getting back to work. I don't think it surprised me as much because I felt like he was really set straight by the therapist when the therapist reminded him, hey, the reason why you're here is because I'm here to evaluate your mental health and whether or not this shooting affected you. And so I think it was smart of him to share that little bit because it was a way to deflect like this isn't about Ollie. What you see me being upset about is not a concern. You need to worry about me being sad about shooting someone in the line of duty. I'm upset right now because I had this unsettling dream slash vision of my son so if you're evaluating me on my mental health about the shooting this is unrelated and that's why i'm acting the way i am and, and the piggyback on that i think that's 100 percent correct and then the piggyback on it and, and obviously that that grief is still understandable you can't hold that against me i think it was kind of what he was saying but i think he tips his hand at least to the audience anyway when he ends it with uh, that's a pretty big breakthrough huh I mean, he, he's like kind of very cop-like trying to lead the witness, the witness being the therapist, into a conclusion. Like, I've given you this this very raw nerve memory now. Mark me down in your little therapist book that I'm I'm coming along and I should be able to get back to work. Oh, so it's sort of a gambit. Like a plausible alibi as to why he's upset. It has nothing to do with the shooting. It has to do with this. When he says that's a pretty big breakthrough, that, that's not something I think Ralph would normally say in any context ever, unless he was trying to sell the therapist on the therapist writing down in his notebook, had a big breakthrough today, you know? <laughs> How many times do you think that works with the therapist? You're like, um, <clears throat> could you write down that that was a real breakthrough for me? <laughs> uh, probably not the best idea to point it out. Maybe in Cherokee City, though. This is also the town where they have, you know, Jack uh, as like one of their lead detectives though too. So <laughs> well, it's like one of those things that like uh, like if you're popular, you don't talk about being popular. It's like if you have a breakthrough, you don't talk about the breakthrough. You just have it. It just happens. It just is. You know, you don't have to point it out and highlight it and write it down. What did you think uh, when Jeannie was talking about uh, wanting to include Glory in uh, on the conversation and then volunteering to go over there and deliver it in person and then everything that happens after that? Is Jeannie being uh, magnanimous here or is she really working this case from her own angle in a kind of manipulative way what, what, what was your take on her motivations here Ooh, that was a i like that extra little part that you added about the manipulative way portion i think it is self-serving and that obviously she wants the information from the horse's mouth she is tired of ralph filtering any information to her and she wants to hear it in real time from holly I'm sure she wants the opportunity to ask questions. And I think that this goes to our point last podcast when we were all saying, 
it is not a quality show if you spend your time just withholding information from different characters for a character to actually say let's get everybody in the same room who has anything to do with this case and that way all the information can be shared at the same time that's yay i love it and even though it is self-serving i'm okay with it i think in a lot of ways the that whole setup of this episode goes back to what we were talking about last week how we're through the middle of the season now and the show has to start setting up the end game and it's with its final five episodes and i think this episode with that big brain trust meeting uh, coming all together, I, I think definitely started that process. But was inviting Glory really the right way to go? I'm trying to remember in the book whether or not they had Glory at this. Meeting. She was, but she did not have the reaction that she has here. That's why I was not remembering her. Yeah, she she's um, in a book is much more uh, flat emotionally slash more genie Eunice side ready to believe that there's something else out there she never has the crack in believing in her husband that we saw tonight this is part of why moving to georgia doesn't make quite as much sense as when they were located in oklahoma in the book because part of the idea of el cuco was that there were enough people from mexico around to have heard this story and that's where you still remains a very important character in this because Ralph respects him and he's heard this story. And so that's kind of how that connection is going to work. But being in Georgia, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the influence would be quite as strong out there. That's interesting. I, I always think I think of Oklahoma. I think of like more of a Native American influence, though, too. That for could some be. reason. Yeah. And yeah. which obviously, I mean, as a as a people are much more spiritually inclined, more likely to have a story about ancestors and some kind of malevolent spirit. Versus maybe, say, a Georgia. You're probably right. The malevolent spirit lore in Georgia is probably thinner, <laughs> generally and culturally. Well, I'm going to pipe up to that and say that I think that they did a really good job of explaining that this belief and this legend slash myth, whatever, has crossed all continents, all cultures, throughout time. So I don't think that it's necessary to really focus so much on any one particular culture El Coco, no. yes, that, right. but but the larger idea, I think they did a wonderful job of saying this has spanned every culture. So really, location is not as important to oh, me. For, for sure. When Glory blows up and she stands up, she, she knows exactly what we're talking about here. She starts cursing the boogeyman up and down as she storms out that the big the big fucking plan is to blame the goddamn boogeyman for, you know, what her husband did. You know, she she knows, obviously, what we're talking about here and picks right up on, on the concept. Let's go back and talk about Glory a little bit when Jeannie comes over and decides that she is going to go ahead and invite her to the information sesh with everyone. Uh -huh. She brings with her Derek's toys. What did you guys think about that? Oh, I, I took it as a price of admission, but slash a just base manipulation that she knows Glory's not going to let her get to her kids because Jeannie wants that drawing. She wants to do the sketch of the drawing that Jessa saw, and she knows that Glory's only going to let that if she can make a connection with the kids and, and kind of tweak on that emotional muscle a bit. Um, so for me, it was a very manipulative uh, or a very calculated move on her part. I, I missed this uh, nuance. Did she basically ask for four or five different versions of the drawing or has she been there that many times that she was able to produce that many or did she get them all in that one sitting she did three drawings i think at that sitting with jessa 
later on when we see the five painting the pictures hanging hanging up uh-huh. the first one is merlin's the okay. next three are the versions jessa saw the fifth one which looks like merlin's is the end of the or the other part end of the cycle and that was the one that genie saw okay you could tell because the eyes the eyes all have her father's eye and terry's eyes and then the two uh, black circles for eyes, those three in the middle, those were the Jessa drawings. In the book, uh, King kept referring to the eyes looking like straws. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it, in, in the book, it kind of creates a, a kind of a visual for the reader. And they haven't mentioned that once in the show. This would have been the part where it would have come up because it was always the Jessica. It's Jessica here. And I think it's. I can't remember what her name is now, uh, it, the change, but the daughter, the Jessa character in the book is the one who always talked about the straws. It came up with other characters too. It was a very consistent yeah. description, but here she very specifically in that scene where it would have come up refers to it as kind of black holes. Yeah. She basically kind of describes a straw, but without saying straw. <laughs> so. Yeah. Like a, it's like a flat 2D version of a straw is kind of what she right. describes here. It worked for me though. I mean, I think the sketch captured it exactly what yeah. I had in my head. The idea of straws always struck me as a little weird. I was thinking of like fucking paper straws at Disney World. Like, oh, that's kind of weird thing I to be sticking out of someone's you know face. I, don't I, know. I thought of the sand people from Star Wars, but I think of you know Star Wars for everything. So, but what did you think of Glory's reaction at the end? Because she, obviously she let this in. She she let the, the the toys be played with. She let the drawings go. But then at the end, she she kind she turns kind of cold to Genie and is kind of like, I hope what you've putting my girls through. They are all regressing. I hope it's worth it. I thought it was a, a weird flip that was kind of switched there at the end when they said goodbye. I don't think that it was that weird because I think it's one of those times when you go through an experience where another adult has asked to interact with your child in some way. This has happened to me before. And then that experience yields a response in your child that you weren't necessarily expecting. So the way that the child needed to speak to the sister and have the sister talk out loud, that is a big regression than the first time Jeannie talked to Jessa and she had no problem just talking to her on the top of the stairs in the previous episodes. So I think when you're actually living through that and then absorbing, like my child is having to sit on my lap, having to talk through another person now, this better have been worth it. This is friggin' insane. I don't think she recognized how bad this was getting until she lived through it. So then the end was just her response to, to just having experienced that with her kiddo. But yet, but she, yet she did let the three sketches go through, though, also. So some part of her thinks it's worth it or, or hopes at least it's worth it, though. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think that she wants it to be worth it. I mean, Paul, I feel like there's been times when when we've agreed to like a test for one of our kids, whether it be medical or something else. And then the kid is crying at the end or something. And you're like, well, this better have been worth it. Like you get like that tensed up feeling like other adult, you talked me into this. And then now the process really sucked. And this better have been worth all of this. You know, I think that's the right feeling to justify her turn because i was like mike in the moment i was like what i mean you let her in the house but yeah as, as you think about it that explanation really works so yeah i think you extra send off that like this better have been worth it you better have some findings you better have some test results that made me just have to hold my kid let's stay with genie and leapfrog the meeting which i think we'll talk about more fully but let's suffice to say genie is not cool with with holly's story and the way that brain trust meeting goes out and she comes home later. What did you think of the purging of Terry's scene and then her conversation when she calls uh, Ralph to come over? Did Glory crack in this episode? Is her shield of believability in her husband 
forever broken now or was this just a tiny blip and tear in her in her strength i think it was just a blip because she had never let the idea of terry maybe perhaps having committed the murders in before and for some reason since you know sitting through holly's presentation finding it completely incredulous all she's left with then is this explanation that they've been giving her which is that he did it it was really interesting to have ralph there to be in the position to actually then defend terry and and say no no he i'm pretty sure he didn't do it, which you know they, they could have gone back and forth with the why did you arrest him then kind of thing but i'm glad they didn't didn't do that but yeah that was a pretty powerful scene having to have ralph basically just reverse course and, and come out and say that he doesn't think he did it which is the first time he has said that in this show it's the first time he has vocalized those words that gut instinct push comes to shove i don't think he did it and i, I agree with you i think it was telling and I think it is powerful that it's him that says that. Everyone else, I think, would have been probably a lot more willing a long time ago to say gut instinct. I don't think he did it, but I agree with you. I think it was a powerful scene. So I think a big part of this frustration we're hearing from Glory is the idea, and she she vocalizes this, that if you're a good man, a good person, an innocent person, it should not be so difficult to prove that to other people. And I think that her going through all of his stuff, trying to look for anything that could explain what happened, and not really having anything that she could hold up as evidence of a good man. Because really, how do you prove you're a good person as opposed to how easy it is to have tangible evidence when someone has done wrong? It's really hard to prove when someone has made right choices. Because there's just nothing as tangible there to show. And so I think that for her, once she hears Holly's explanation, and it seems so far-fetched, it's how do you prove someone didn't do something, as opposed to how do you prove that someone did do something? It's so much harder to prove the innocent side of things. That whole scene was really, I think, really, really powerful. Um, not only when she has to say the words, what if he killed that boy, which I, for me, like really made me wince that she's come to this point that she's been brought so low by her frustration that she has to say that. But like, I think you just said it before, which she has to say, it shouldn't be this hard to prove his innocence. That hurts my heart because that is just, especially in this country, that's the antithesis of how we're all supposed to be able to live, right? You should never have to prove someone's innocence. You should always have to prove their guilt but here it's just been so fucked you know from the beginning it's so skewed from the beginning that we've put terry and now his family in a position of having to prove his innocence and that's not how it should work you know it, it's just it's just the the flipping of how everything how the goo man fucks everything up it was one of those times when I feel like that is a, an extremely relatable feeling, not necessarily as glory, but just as a person who all of us, whether we were children or adults, have been accused of something we know we did not do or have been in some way penalized for something we know was not just. I can think of a variety of things from being a little kid to feeling like that was an unfair accusation to being an adult and feeling like someone didn't understand my intentions in the situation and I was being penalized unfairly. It's so hard to prove that you made the right choices when someone perceives that you've done it wrong. That feeling is even exacerbated more when it's a person who has passed on who is in that position also. You know, that, that the dead can't speak 
you, know, you think about all the times of families that try and prove post, uh, say, death penalty or something like that, that their father or brother or or son, some kind of loved one was not guilty. They knew it and they paid the ultimate price and then died. And then, you know, there's so many, they're like the, the innocence project, you know, all these exoneration projects that try and continue to prove like post death, you know, posthumously that someone was innocent. And then when it happens, it's almost like this bittersweet feeling, but it's never easy to prove your innocence when you know, you've been wrongly can, uh, you know, accused of something. It's even worse and it's even harder when you're trying to do it on behalf of someone who can't speak or defend for themselves, you know, think how much help Terry would be. Maybe, maybe, maybe he wouldn't be, but think about the thought experiment. If Terry was still alive and in jail, you know, what, what he'd be able to lend to this conversation or at least be a continued source for his wife and his daughters, you know, continuing to be able to hear that he's innocent. You know, they haven't been able to hear. I didn't do this from him now for, for weeks. So when she was looking through his stuff, was she basically just looking for anything to to tell her one way or the other, innocence or guilt, like, you know, yes. child porn or, or something in there that would just be like, aha, see, I knew yes. it. Yes. And that is the part when you said, Mike, that it was so hard to hear her say, you know, maybe he did do it. I think that the line, too, that she says to Ralph, when you say, you know, husbands, wives keep things from each other. You know, I know I kept stuff from Terry. So in my mind, it's easy for me to think he's kept something from me. She didn't say that part, but that was like the implied. So then that like that really broke my heart that again, like you said, in death, she has to wonder about her husband and wonder what he was doing, you know, when she when he was away from her. That is awful. As a parent, what was your feeling at the end when she comes home and she sees her daughter going through the purge pile, you know, with almost a look of accusation. Like the daughter obviously doesn't know what the mother was doing with her father's like stuff, but the idea of all of daddy's shit is piled in the hallway in a very unceremonious way, I think has a very specific kind of meaning to even a kid. What was your takeaway? Was that guilt on Glory's face at the end? Or was that just, you know, you're too young, you don't understand? It's probably both of those. I mean, you could feel both of those at the same time. Guilt and having lost your your belief for a moment, but then also just that it's it's way more complex than than your little mind is going to be able to understand right now. I think also the idea that she realized that her actions and what she's doing, it's affecting the kids, the girls, in a way that she was sort of indulging her doubts and and allowed that to spill over into a way that the children now see that, you know, dad's stuff is just kind of like piled there. For one weird second, I, when I wasn't sure what she was doing, I kind of thought that she was like collecting his stuff, like, I don't know what, like donation or giveaway or something, because it felt like a funny parallel to um, Jeannie being in Derek's room and collecting up his toys. And when Ralph says, what are you doing? She says, oh, I'm just sorting things. For some reason, I thought in that moment too, oh, she's starting to let go. She's collecting some of this stuff and is going to maybe donate it, which she ultimately did give it away. So for some reason, I had that little nugget in my head. And so when I saw her start going through Terry stuff, I thought, oh gosh, is she going to give this stuff away in some way? Like, is she already doing that? I kind of kept that in the back of my head for when the when the daughter was kind of staring at her like, how have you moved on or how have you been already able to move his stuff around? Yeah, it What's seemed wrong very with you? it seemed it seemed very accusing from her daughter. I took that look of what the hell is going on here with this again. I not the daughter obviously not understanding what was going on, but knowing that this is not where all of Dad's stuff belongs. And uh, yeah, I think it was very accusing. I actually thought she was going to do a bonfire. 
the way she was just kind of I thought it was, she was heaping in was I thought we were going to get some kind of bonfire on the lawn was my uh was my it thought. did come off really negative the way that she was digging through came off aggressive and in that way I, I really didn't know exactly what she was getting at and I'm not sure what you would find I guess like you said Paul maybe child porn or, or something that would just definitively give you an idea if you had to live the rest of your life standing at the fork of a road forever like you never know which way that road was supposed to go or was really the path actually happened I mean, how much would that drive you insane? It would drive me personally very insane because I I have a mad need to make sure I don't have to be right. I want to be clear on that. I don't. I'm not somebody who has to be right. I'm somebody who has to know that the other person understood my intentions in the situation. I don't have to have been on the side of necessarily right. I just need them to understand why I did what I did, right or wrong. I feel like in this case, that's all she wants out of Terry. She just wants to understand the intention of what was happening during that time. Was he on the side of good or bad or what? She doesn't care, but she just wants to know what his intentions were during that time. I think her best case scenario in that situation was to find 18 and horny porn, but with a note that says, yes, I look at this, but definitely don't kill kids. You know, like something like that. I think her best case scenario is some is finding some kind of odd secret of her husband, but in another way also exonerate him from any other kind of wrongdoing. She's never going to find that, you know. Right. She knows her husband. She knows she was married to a good man. She got. She tells Jeannie. Uh, she tells Ralph. You know, I know he was a good man. She's knowingly looking through all of his stuff in a fruitless search, just because I think she's desperate and a little unhinged. I think desperate is the best descriptor. I, 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 like I said, that that frustration of standing at the fork of the road and just wanting someone, whether it's good or bad, you just want to know already. You just want to know what's happening. My question for you guys, and this is, we haven't come, we haven't covered this yet. And this is where my mind went with all of the glory stuff was, does this crack in the armor, this, this slip, whether it was temporary or not, does this open her and the girls up to the tear drinker We've spent a lot of time, especially last week and the week before, talking about how she has this kind of protection, it seems, either because it was Jeannie doing it or for whatever reason, unlike all of the other victims of uh, El Cuco or the Outsider or the Goo Man that have destroyed families, Gloria and the girls, for some reason, have been largely spared that ultimate destruction. Does this open it up now? Is there a tear in the fabric now? I was curious what you guys thought about that. I think she needed Ralph's words and she heard Ralph's words. So there may still be a lingering doubt, but I think she's she's put back together again. But you're right about the unhinged part. She kind of lost it several times in this episode. So you might be onto something. Now that now that I kind of talk it through, you might be onto something that 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 creates a vulnerability for the the remainder of the Maitlands. I agree with you very much. I think that having that moment of doubt is exactly the little crack in the door that that's what the tear drinker needs to be able to start festering in somebody you know all all that extra grief and you could easily start turning around people's actions especially after death like you said where they can't explain their intention where you could say well he did come home late well he did you know spend an awful lot of time around the little boys at the little league you could start like playing all kinds of horrible mind games he did have two daughters Yeah, he did have two daughters, but taught little boys Little League, you know. And for me, I'll tell you why this actually entered my brain, was I was thinking of Heath Hofstetter's grandmother, who we learn was a staunch proponent of her son being with her the entire time 
through the period that he was accused of killing the girls. And it's not until the policeman, the faceless policeman, shows her the bloody little girl's underwear and, and we see her break down in that little montage of the Heath Hofstetter story. Then she gets in her car, she drives to traffic, and she kills herself. It, it was that rip in the faith of her son that broke her, you know, that rip in that belief, that absolute shield that protected her. That was kind of the my, my thoughts I was making here. If the best defense against Terry's innocence is the boogeyman, you know, is this the bloody underwear in the box trophy moment for, for glory? I am thrilled beyond belief that you brought up Heath's story and the fact that we saw the grandma because we had such a lengthy conversation in our last episode about whether or not it was valid to go into all those other people's backstories and to bring in the bedmaker slash Tracy. We find out his name is Tracy Powell. I really felt like, you know, I really think that there's information we're supposed to glean from that story and I think it's going to carry forward. I really am so happy that it was brought so clearly to us that like you could draw that parallel. Like, why did we have to see the grandma? Why did we have to see the bloody underwear? Why did we have to get into Heath's story? Because now we can see how having a little piece of evidence is all that has to happen to push someone over the edge like that. Um, let's get into Holly's story because this is when Tracy Powell comes into play. And I think that our discussion last week about Pascal from Pet Cemetery and the idea of the dead coming back to help or hurt, we can decide and discuss, is really a Stephen King moment that comes full circle here in this episode. Let's start with the beginning of Holly's story. She has to get home. She has to get to Georgia, basically. And this whole bus scenario happens. What do you, what do you guys think she went through? In order to make all that happen, was it a legit goo man vision? Or was it her own nerves bringing Tracy, who she just, I, I think she'd probably seen him on the news monitors in the bus station, into her thoughts? Like, was it a supernatural event or was it just nerves? I think additionally, she had gotten the information from Andy that Tracy and Heath were first cousins and that she was, she had been looking things up about Tracy Powell. And that's when she then had like the vision of him on the bus. Is that the correct timing? I'm not sure about the first cousin thing, if she got that info before or after she, she had the vision. She does. She got the information, but then had no Wi-Fi to respond to him. So then she puts her laptop down and then it's in the middle of the night that she wakes up. She's groggy. She heads towards the back of the bus to use the restroom and then the Tracy character turns around, grabs her, and says, look. And then she sees the blockade right outside the bus that the bus is speeding towards, but, you know, runs forward screaming and almost, you know, causes the bus to, to careen. Question mark on that, Mike, because I asked Paul when we were watching, and I'm, I'm still a little unclear. Does her screaming cause the bus to skid and have mm -hmm. this issue? Or was the driver going to have a problem and then because she screamed, he jerked the wheel? No, no. It was purely a, a vision that the goo man put in her sight. When he when he grabs oh, her, oh, when the okay. dead Tracy grabs her, turns her, and he's holding her by the shoulders, facing her head out down the, the length of the bus and out the window, there's there's a uh, looks like another bus like pepper, perpendicular to the road that they're speeding towards. So then she begins running forward out of the vision, I guess, presumably screaming, stop, stop, stop. And it's her distraction. The bus driver turns his head and starts to careen the bus against the railing and then kind of, you know, ping pongs it around. Yeah. Okay. So um, that thing that was in the road was not really there. It wasn't that it was going to hit something and she kept that from happening. It was that this, whatever the influence of, Tracy's. Uh, oh, whatever. no, I, I'm, I think you're right. I think it's a goo man vision. 
I, okay. I 100% okay. think it's a good I was so confused I, yeah. because I saw it, like you're saying it, like I saw it like there was something in the road and she yells and then he swerves. And even though there was a little bit of hitting along the rail, they didn't actually crash. So I thought, oh, well, was this then a good vision in that he was keeping her from something happening or was this a bad vision? And because she was screaming, the bus driver jerks the wheel and and almost gets them hurt. So okay, I hear what you're saying. Both yeah. things are both things are right in terms of there was something in the road, but it was a false vision. That's how you're seeing it. Your prediction from last week, I think, has actually really uh, proven true to the nth degree in this episode uh, several times. You know how you made an emphatic defense of the goo man actively trying to stop her and prevent her from returning to Georgia. I think this was the goo man's next attempt. Obviously, then when she gets back in town and she he takes over with Jack trying to stop Holly. But this was the attempt on the bus to manipulate her. The goo man is scared of Holly and what she knows, whether or not anyone believes her at this point. Um, and I think he is using all of his mental projection tricks that she talks about in this episode to stop her. Because I think physically he can't right now. So I think that's why he's using all these mental gymnastic tricks. Going back to last week, for those of you who who didn't listen or whatever, I one of the <gasps> who things didn't that, listen God, that scared Turn me. Turn this I podcast off right now. I thought you were barfing and or <laughs> sneezing. Into I'm the barfing mic. at the people who didn't listen. Okay, oh but I goodness. just want to say that if you didn't listen last week, uh, I'll just give you like a two sentence summary. Uh, one of the things that I was feeling a lot of connective. Uh, storylines too was other King stories where like in the shining when Dick Holleran is trying to get to the group and, and he can't get to the family because of a variety of things. The phone line goes dead, all different things like that. And you guys, I want to point out this, although this is a slight side, side John, the shining utilizes the bartender conversation as well for giving concrete information or so we feel back and forth to Jack at the bar mm -hmm. whether or not that bartender's real whether or not that really all happened you know who knows but i thought that that was an interesting little like symmetry there between the two stories that holly would also sit at a bar and get a lot of information back and forth between a bartender okay so then additionally i pointed out in pet cemetery where pascal a dead young man similar to tracy actually i think they're even the same age i want to say pascal was like he was a student so he was like 20 years old had also comes back and ends up trying to in this case, I think he's trying to steer Rachel to get to the family home, but in many ways that doesn't really, it doesn't work out well either. So I thought that that was super cool that I think that they kept that king part in. Even if you boys can tell us, was it in the book that, that it was used in that way or no? This, no. Uh, they've extended Holly's investigation and, and all that quite a bit more than, than I recall from in the book. The, the whole New York leg of the journey, for instance, never happened in the book. She didn't need to go that far. So this is King-inspired writing that fits with the pattern. And so it feels Kingy and, and right, but it, it's not from the book. I'm glad for that, that it wasn't in the book and that they did it. Because I feel like that was one of those things then that feels like they're doing a good job of incorporating that vibe that King brings and the way that he does craft his stories even into a story that is both his and doesn't happen to use it. Like, good on them for figuring that. Were you guys shocked that Holly actually notices the neck marks within the photograph on Tracy's photos? I mean, I think it stands out. I think if you're going to look at the pictures you took, I think that 
is such a weird anomaly on someone. I think that's what caught her. That, that was how I took it. Uh, obviously, it pays off at the very end of the episode, but it's Chekhov's, you know, neck marks in a little bit of a way. The surprising thing wasn't noticing them. It was the surprising thing was taking the pictures, actually. Right. Well, we saw her very clearly taking pictures of his backside last week. So it didn't really make it didn't surprise me that she would catch that. She very clearly took pictures when he's bent over the grave marker last week, which maybe that is the weird thing is that she took pictures of someone who she can only see the back of their head. But uh, if you're going to look at those pictures, I think it'd be probably hard to miss that. But also again, for Holly, I mean, she's got this, I wouldn't say supernatural detective ability, but she certainly has a real PI's eye for details. Yes. So uh, can we talk about Andy real quick? Because Andy was back in this episode a little bit or just at the beginning anyway. And, uh, you know, he's been a recurring theme that, uh, I think none of us really know what to make of him. I was curious if you guys picked up on the little smile he gave to himself before he picked up the phone when she calls him to talk about Tracy Powell when she's in the bus station. Did you guys notice he gave a little smile like a really, oh, that person makes me happy smile to himself? I didn't notice the little little smile. I, I picked up on that Andy's, he's definitely trying as hard as he can <laughs> to stay in the front of, of Holly's mind. Uh, and that Holly, she's very likely on the spectrum, so she doesn't deal with people the same way as as everybody else. But she's not giving a lot of a lot of signs, uh, other than the fact that she keeps talking to him, but he keeps giving her information that she needs. So I guess it kind of right. serves that purpose. But she's not overly interested in any extracurricular talking at this point. True, but she is continuing to go back to him for information. Like, she didn't necessarily need to. She was moving on. She was getting back on the bus to Georgia. She didn't need to call him in the bus station about Tracy Powell and make that connection, but she did. So, in my way, I wonder if this was her way of also on her end, keeping that connection to him alive to continue to have a dialogue with him, which obviously he seems more than fine with. He was doing dog-legged work for her, not really to his mall security business. I also thought that he looked like he wasn't in a mall security office. It looked like he was in much more of like a traditional police station when they were talking on the phone. Did you guys see that or did you see- That part was a little weird in that what kind of mall security requires like all this- desks and paperwork and people shuffling around like i don't know i i kind of i thought mall security was a little more basically the boots on the ground doing the making sure people are in the right places doing the right things and that was about the extent of it <laughs> maybe i've maybe i've yeah. really underestimated the art of mall security that and i thought that the way that they showed that that parking lot was being monitored by him it was more like he was just in his car driving around watching people. And I mean, you guys, to the extent that like a van was taken, they are obviously at a skeleton crew that a van could be stolen in the parking lot and like no one saw anything. There was no footage or anything like that. So in that way, I'm kind of wondering, again, what was that office? Where was he? And do we believe Andy's backstory that this is all he is? is this small security person. Where is he really working from? Yeah, I mean, that he was able to get and share with her the info that the Williams sisters' fingerprints were found in Tracy's car. And as if that was new information, that doesn't sound like something that would have been covered on the news. So either he has really good sources within the police, or I agree with you, there's there's something else about him that we don't really yet understand. Uh, sorry to jump in, but he was, he was pulling up information kind of like in a cop show, right? 
the stuff about yeah. Tracy, maybe it's all on the regular internet, but the way that he was, he was like dropping in these little uh, tips from home office, basically, you're right. It does seem like what, uh, the, what kind of mall security office has access to these little factoids? Right. I mean, I know people who have, who were cops and who are retired who really do maintain almost real time access through their friends or, but it's not real time access and you don't get that kind of turnaround time to new information in a case that's not otherwise been made public. So Andy's in some kind of special situation here. All of that being said, though, that smile, if you take a look again, it, it, it made me feel much better that he is not a bad guy. Whatever he is, I don't think he is on the side of the bad guys. Me neither. So. I think he, I think he's in the, on the side of wanting to spend time with Holly and to be useful to Holly. But that's about it. I am maintaining my squinty eyes at him because just because he smiles that she calls, I don't think that that has to be a genuine, like, ooh, I'm, I'm so into her. And even though I know he said, like, oh, I was just thinking about you, like that kind of thing, that doesn't have to be on the up and up. And, and, if he is on not on the up and up, he would smile that she's coming back and she's she's kind of willingly scooting back into his life because then he doesn't have to inject himself into hers. So I'm just I'm I'm squinting my eyes at him. I am trying to I'm looking around that office. I'm trying to figure out what the frig is he up to. I totally agree with that. And I think there is a smile, uh a a sinister smile that you, someone can do when they see someone's name called. But this wasn't that. I'm telling you, look at it again. This was a genuine smile of, I am pleased that this person is calling me in a, I have hearts for eyes kind of way. <laughs> it was, it was that smile. It was like a micro expression. It was, it was, it was a piece of good acting on, on uh, his part, but it was, it was a total micro expression the way you subconsciously react when someone comes across you that you like or don't like. It was that kind of smile. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't that. It was a micro expression of, of, of love. So. I agree to disagree. I am going to pay attention and I'm going to keep being suspicious of him. I like that you did raspberries at me when I say that. <laughs> I say it so nicely and you're like, <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> You guys, let's move on a little bit into Holly actually getting to back feet on the ground in Georgia. And she gets the call from Jack that he is supposed to pick her up on, on Ralph's request. Did you guys get the hair up on the back of your non-blistered necks? I did in that we saw Jack call Ralph to contribute. And we didn't hear Ralph say, why don't you go pick her up at the bus station? And we know that Jack is uh, the Gooman's bitch. So this added up to she might be in trouble. What did you think, Mike? I I, th I believe that this was something that Ralph asked him to do because from Ralph's standpoint, if someone, you know, Jack calls, especially after the conversation last week, this uh, mea culpa kind of conversation that Jack, you know, came over to have with Ralph, th this seems like a pretty benign way to have Jack help without actually having to have Jack help. It gets Jack out of Ralph's hair to go put him on Holly detail. So I think the inference that this is what Ralph asked him to do when he says, can I help, uh, is probably legit. I think it was more interesting that the goo man responded by healing Jack's head the way he did, you know, and the way Jack thanks him so sincerely or thanks goo man so sincerely yeah. at the beginning. For me, that was really significant because that's a, that really makes what the goo man did to him a real carrot and stick situation. 
in the book, Jack repeatedly says, I don't think you can undo what you've done to me, but still does his bidding just in case, because he figures it can only get worse. Here, this really, I think, really muddies the situation because now Jack has had concrete proof that it can be lessened if he plays ball and obviously be made worse if he doesn't. I'm going to sadly disagree with you on this one and say I did not hear Rolf asked for a ride from Jack to Holly. And additionally, later on, it's clear that Rolf has made no accommodations for Holly in terms of a place to stay or anything like that. In that Jeannie has to ask her to stay and Rolf says, do you have a hotel? I don't feel like Ralph thought about how she was going to get from the bus station. I don't think he thought about where she was staying. I don't think he was trying to take care of Holly. So Jack calling up like that and saying, and we didn't see Ralph ask, I say Jack came up with this on his own. And that's why he gets the heel from the goo man is because this was a clever way to get into her world. And goo man's like, good job, way to go. Well, I think he gets the healing before he actually makes that call. But how else would Jack, Jack seems very on the outside though. I don't, how would Jack know how would Jack have known what bus she was getting off to be there so exact unless Ralph told him? He called her cell phone and was like, hey, I'm supposed to pick you up. Like, let's hook up and I'll pick you up. Maybe. No, that's what happened. <laughs> that is what happened. I mean, did she No, no, no. I'm, 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 saying, I'm saying that Ralph didn't. I, I think, I don't know. I took that as a, because the way the editing was done, it seemed like that was uh, the fair inference to make, but maybe not but maybe he did just go off on his own to do it. I think he's a scary, scary freaking dude. And you guys- Oh yeah, I don't doubt that. I don't don't know that that. I could get in the car with him. I don't know that if I, if he pulled up and he was like, I'm supposed to take you, I'd be like, I mean, in this world of Uber and Lyft and stuff, I'd be like, oh, I already ordered an Uber. Like I'm good. And I would just be like, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop. I don't think I would get in the car. He's got a face from a woman's perspective that you do not get in the car with him. Like he is not (laughs) right. Sure, but I think- something about him. I, to Holly's credit, though, she puts him on blast from almost the first moment that they're alone together. They go to have breakfast. She's like, the fuck is wrong with you? Like, yes. almost from the get go. <laughs> you know, I mean, she says it in her more polite Holly way. But she, you know, she's basically like, yo, there's some evil inside you or some kind of like major hurt or torture going on. Like, we should just talk about that now because you are you are a scary dude. I think she I think she calls him on that almost immediately. I'm so glad that she did because that was so true to her character and such a great read on him because he oozes something's fucked up with me. <laughs> I had a que- I had a question for you guys when they're at that breakfast when she asks him it looks like someone's trying to rip out your heart and then he kind of shudders and has like that like he he's going through like a little heart attack or something. Does Holly see that or no? Is that just in his head that we see? Because she doesn't have any reaction to that. And if someone did that while I was sitting across from them, I would be like calling 911 or something. The way that he keeps seeing things that are just for him, like stop her and like, you know, his hands cracking apart in the meeting to, to spill out, stop her. I think those are all that he all feels them like they're real, but they're all essentially right. in his head. I think that was my take, too, because I think Holly would have other obviously said something if he had kind of doubled over and then was like, well, actually, my wife, let, you know, then he was all cool about it. Um, so, <laughs> I'll add in, though, that, that I think that Holly's I think hey. that Holly's personality is such that she is accustomed to seeing really freaky situations and staying at like a neutral place. And so I don't know that she would have had a big response 
even if she did see it. But I agree with you guys that it was probably just an internal sensation he felt and that it didn't really look like that in real time. But I don't know that we can count on her facial expressions or her emotional response to really let us know how much she's absorbing and how she's taking things, which is very tricky as a character. I mean, for all of us, I mean, we're relying on our actors to let us know those subtle things through their little tiny facial expressions and movement and stuff like that. And playing a character that's, you know, very neutral, generally, she's more complicated for all of us. You know, when uh, this show started, I didn't take the time to look up who she was or what she has done with her acting career. I knew that I'd never seen her before, and that was it. And then here we are on Oscar night, and she's nominated to, for Harriet Tubman tonight. <laughs> so uh-huh. she's a big deal. She's a pretty big deal. I think I think she is the Oscar away from an EGOT, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. That's amazing. She's, I had she's seen one her of the letters on- away. When, what, oh uh, gosh, I, I feel terrible that I can't remember. What was the, just the last award show? The Globes? It was Golden Globes, I guess. Was it? I don't know, you guys. Oh gosh, I don't know now. But she, but they zoomed in on her and I was like, hey, that's Holly. And that was the first time that I had really seen her outside the show. And I was so surprised at her very thick British accent. <laughs> I was like, wow, she does an, a great American accent. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a mind blower for you. Ralph is British too. <laughs> Dang, yeah. he does a good mellow southerny uh, he's accent. He's an amazing actor, really. Which is so funny because I did not love him on Bloodlines. That was one of those good cases of where the actor mashes into the character so much that I like didn't like the actor because I didn't like the character. You know, when seeing him in Bloodline was like it was like, where's this guy been? You know, he's obviously no spring chicken. So how come I've never seen him before? And then since Bloodline. I haven't gone like six weeks without seeing him in something else. Yeah, I think he's one of those actors that's much more prolific than you think about it. Then you look at his IMDb and you're like, oh, yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff. But to, to go back to Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Revo, who, who's, who plays Holly here, the first episode that she was in on this, I think it was the next night I was sitting watching TV and uh, Bad Time at El Royale came on, which I had not seen and I had wanted to. So I sat down and I watched it and... She's in that and she sings and she has got just a gorgeous voice. She, she does some like acapella do up, like sixties do up in the movie. And holy shit, she has got a great voice. So I was not surprised to learn that she is just the Oscar away from EGOT. So she wins the Oscar tonight. She gets it. So she has a daytime Emmy for a performance on the Today Show. She has a Grammy for a cast album in the color purple and she has a Tony for her performance in the color purple. So she wins tonight for Harriet. Um, yeah, she'll be probably also one. I haven't looked this up, but I imagine she's probably also be one of the youngest EGOT winners also. But uh, yeah, if you've never heard her sing, definitely check out her voice. It is something amazing. You know, I didn't realize that was her. I've seen that movie and I didn't even realize that was her. I'll show that movie to you, Caroline, if you're interested. It, it has, um, if you've been missing kind of a pulp fiction vibe in your life this might scratch that itch not completely but it'll come closer than anything you've seen in a while i love that i totally want to see it it seems like we should probably get to the big meeting at this point right we've been talking for an hour and we haven't even really scratched into the whole point of the episode which was the big meeting the big reveal go for it she has the big reveal and it goes like shit is the definition of a lead balloon for sure. Now, I was I told Caroline that one of the differences in the book, and and I'm I'm not sure if it would have helped or hurt in this situation. Probably hurt was she had used Mexican video 
of El Cuco told through Mexican female professional wrestlers uh, as the protagonists of the of the story. Again, that's what kind of resonated with with Yoon in the book because he had actually seen that and and, and uh, starting to connect the dots and all that. But she didn't use that here. That probably helped her actually not using that here the way things went. I think you're right. I think they would have thought she was even more crazy to come forward with a straight face explanation had she busted out that 10 minute video that she shows in the book. But yeah, I mean, she, you're absolutely right. The, she definitely uses that as her proof. But the only person that it really on the face convinces in the book is Yoon because he was familiar with it from his childhood. And here in the story, the way the story plays out, he's already kind of on board anyway. He's the only one who really embraces this, I think, from the word get-go. You know, he even crosses himself when he's talking I, about That's El Cuco, a small you know? detail, but yes, he does. I do want to say one quick thing about Yoon because um, I don't think we have to talk about him a ton in detail here. But it brings us over the little Claude story for just a moment. Claude is definitely struggling over there and still getting himself into these tussles at the peaches crease. And when he goes out to that alley, we hear that whooshing sound. You guys, I could not have been more relieved to see Yoon sitting in the car watching Claude. It was such an amazing, like, Yoon! <laughs> I just wanted him to follow up with this. It was so great. How do you guys feel about that? That's what's going to make it connect is Yoon seeing something I don't know what he's going to see because this is all kind of new but he's going to he's going to help connect the dots because Ralph he's not really tolerating or trusting Holly in the front of his mind the part that is going to actually impel his body to work <laughs> and, and, and help solve the crime using Holly's evidence it's only when someone like Yoon comes along and says I don't know how to explain it but I saw the melty face guy or I saw Claude in two places or something it's going to take that so I was so glad to see him there same though I'll tell you he looked a little sinister he looked a little bit like the way Jack stalks everyone from his car the way he was eyeballing Claude but I agree with Paul. I think if Ralph is eventually going to come around, it's not going to be Jeannie, you know, even though he loves her. It's not going to be Holly, who he thinks is crazy. It's going to be this longtime trusted associate in Yoon that's going to be the one that kind of drags him to agreement. I thought Claude's reaction to getting sliced with a knife on the, sh on the arm was pretty warranted to want to wanna beat the shit out of that guy, even though if he is a bouncer. What did you guys take away? Was he unhinged? Was this a sign that he is been has been infected or was it a legitimate response to that guy? I think it was legit response. I even think it was kind of a mild response. I mean, getting Same. sliced by a knife. I mean, I would I would really go crazy. Yeah. What 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 cop is going to arrest him for punching a guy a couple times after he gets his, his arm sliced? Yeah, I agree with no you. No cop ever. No. Well, that's true. Let's back up to the meeting, though. We covered Claude. Now. What did you think about that idea of, she uses the word selected. I have that highlighted in my notes that all three were selected. Did you guys key in on any of that? Yes, that Terry, Heath, and Angela were selected individuals. Right, like cherry-picked for one reason or a host of reasons that made them, like I think we'd actually talked about this uh, a little bit. But they, not in the context that Holly meant it, just that we thought that in one way or another, they, that, that selecting these people would generate the right kind of grief 
that the tear drinker wanted to eat. That's exactly how I heard it. And and it's and it went to Mike's point last week about why are certain people immune to the goo man? And then now we have this added layer of why are certain people selected by the goo man? What are the characteristics that either of these groups have? It's something I really want to explore. Do you think that we're, we're going to get more into that? I think so. I think this is a big part of the ultimate core lore of how El Cuco works is who he selects, who he chooses for the Jack role or the Tracy Powell role, who escapes the selection. If my theory continues to hold that Claude has, has been able to repel um, him and Glory, obviously, and the family have been able to repel the grief aspect of it. I hope so, because for me, it's the most interesting part of the mystery is this aspect of it, because I think it's maybe the most supernatural of it all is is what undefinable characteristic makes you susceptible or not to the outsider's influence. They really didn't give her a chance to get all that out, even if she's on that track, though. But with so many episodes left in the series and me having my unfortunate amount of book knowledge, I got to imagine that they've got to build it up, like you said, with something else in it. And it building up that backstory and and lore that's one way to do it so yeah this idea of what made them prime <laughs> selections is probably going to get filled out here in the next couple episodes i really think it would be remiss if they don't i mean i agree with you guys that this is like the crux of the whole thing because as someone who is the viewer i want to feel like i could protect myself against the outsider and so i want to know what is the criteria to a stay away from them and b not to be a selected person i think that's where they're going with it and i think this episode the focus from holly's point of view was on the timelines which she has been focused on i think heavily the entire series especially since after she got well after she got the date and obviously but even today the the bulk of her meeting presentation was about the timelines about who was infected when. I think it's interesting that she mentions that Terry, when he was was interacted with the Heath Goo Man, was scratched, and she says drew blood, which we know, you know, Maria drew blood from Heath when they were having sex. Obviously, Holly doesn't know that, but we know that, so we know that that's a that's a definitely a part of the transmission. But the the time frames were a big part of this episode. And later on at her house, which I think the most interesting part of Holly's presentation was actually what happened after this meeting, but at, at the Anderson house when she's able to hook up with Jeannie and start putting stories together. I think that was actually lore-wise some of the most interesting stuff. But she sets it out really well with all of the March and February timeframes in the meeting. And I think that's the foundation of the lore that they're building about El Cuco and how he works and who he works through. She's got to lay it out in a, in a timeline and in a, in a very traditional, like the sort of thing that you might exp uh, expect if you were going to court kind of thing. Otherwise, she right. has no chance of being believed by this group. It's almost like she's got to structure it, her delivery and her story as if it were every other kind of evidence and then layer on top. By the way, I think it's a supernatural being. If you have an open mind... Right. If, if you're going to go in without a preconceived notion of how this has to look like, those timelines and the interactions, I find very compelling that it can't be just mere coincidence that a month before he's accused of killing the sisters, he interacts with Maria. A month before, you know, that was 27 days, so 30 days before Terry is accused of killing Frankie Peterson, he interacts with he Like, the, the overlap and the marked interactions with these people on paper is just very compelling 
So if your only hangup is then one plus one plus one equals supernatural monster, I feel like you have to be a little bit compelled anyway by everything that came before the answer is supernatural monster. It didn't connect exactly until she was able to string together the chance meetings of the people from each timeline or storyline or whatever what, what whatever word you want to use. But the fact that there was some crossover that did connect them all, even if it was just a thread, it, they were still connected. And that's, I think, the strongest bit there was that they are... You could conceivably go into the, the on the internet and find three similar crimes and just be like, see, look, they're connected because they're the same. But it you ha- you need that personal connection, which she found. Right. And I mean, she she lays out the interaction time, you know, so it's February 11th, Luis Aprecio is killed by Maria. 27 days before March 6th, Heath meets Maria. March 6th, the Williams sisters are found. 30 days before Frankie Peterson's kill or found, Terry meets Heath. March 30th, Frankie Peterson's found dead. That all sets out some compelling overlap. But then I think we want to move to when Holly's at the Peterson house and she sees the five drawings that Jeannie hung up for her husband's benefit of, you know, before three in the middle, one after. And she talks about how her own findings found a period of 24 to 27 days between the murders. And then she sees what was going on. And and she, she says, I've been missing the piece of the puzzle. What was happening between those 24 to 27 days. And for her, it's it's like finding the corner piece in a puzzle, in a jigsaw puzzle. I don't know that we need to cover much more about the meeting itself, because the most interesting stuff seems to happen later at Jack's house if, with their house cast. <laughs> the, the acting of Ben Mendelsohn in this, you know, the, during the whole scene in the meeting. Not at Jack's house. You said sorry. Jack's house. You, you mean at Ralph's house. I meant house. Ralph's house. Yes. yes okay. Yes. So the the acting that he did in the in the meeting where he's fidgety and physically uncomfortable listening to holly that was all great but then he gets in the car and he's and he says something to the effect of that was a bunch of shit and then holly's in the back and and genie's like awkward (laughs) well well, i think he said he says something like it was a fucking clown show or something (laughs) like that right right and she's like i invited her to stay and 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 holly's uh, i'm I'm sorry i'm having to recount it but it's just a great story just uh, i'll go find a hotel and he's like i wouldn't dream of it (laughs) it was perfect it was well played and again i think allows us to understand that ralph is so bent on finding something that is going to appease glory that then having this extra layer create even more of a problem for him to do do what we all thought he needed to do which was make amends for for hurting their family on this additional level that the the publicity and the humiliation that now making glory sit there through a boogeyman story that basically he allowed his wife to talk him into he is seething pissed. No, boys? Would you guys be? Well, I mean, he was working himself into a lather even before he gets in the car when he's saying goodbye to Yoon. Because Yoon inadvertently sets Ralph off by saying that we should be keeping an open mind about this. And then he's walking away from you and he's like, I'm going to go, you know, find shit like evidence, you know, like stupid cop shit like that. Like he's working himself into a lather before he gets into the car with Jeannie and Holly, too. It's like a, almost like a Twilight Zone episode for him where everyone around him is talking about these supernatural beings and he feels like the only sane person in the world. How did you 
feel about the scene back at Ralph's house where Holly, I mean, she, <laughs> she's unburdened by the niceties of state of, you know, human interaction. And she just is like, look at this pictures. And then she goes over to the table. She's like, uh, needs to do the kind of do it yourself blacklight routine and fingerprinting at the table there. Ralph kind of took that in, in stride, which was interesting. You know, like I, like I said before, like for me, this was the best part of the episode. The meeting part, I think, was necessary because it set the groundwork for where she was going in her presentation. But for, for me, it was seeing her interact with the pictures first, which fills in her timeline puzzle that she's been missing and then she kind of she's able to cut ralph really out of the story because she finds a kindred spirit with genie who's willing to entertain her and help her do her you know makeshift csi in the house because genie will guard against ralph's interference you know in their house ralph is not going to openly challenge genie like that so it allows holly to make her you know makeshift blacklight and show the goo man's calling card as she says he even questions that, like, the goo man's shit is on your table and on your chair, and your response is they're still checking the material out at the lab? Like, dude, uh, unless you're jacking off on your kitchen table and your dining room chair, I've just shown you the goo man was here, whether you want to believe it or not. Not that there's anything wrong with what that. What is your deal? It's your table. Right. <laughs> if you're checking off on the table. Right. Which, nice. You know, no judgment. But I'm assuming that is, you know, obviously Ralph should have said, I jack off on this table, Holly. That is what that is. <laughs> oh, my God. But he did not say that. Um, and that would have been obviously the time to come out clean. But yeah, no, again, it's just more of how far can he not believe before he becomes such an irredeemable asshole? I think he really only allowed it to go forward, not out of respect for his wife, but because when Holly asks, did you dust for fingerprints? And he says no, then even within his own realm of what is an acceptable investigation, he didn't do his quote unquote stupid police work. So he didn't really have any room to say shit at that point about her wanting to do something. Now, whether it's a valid method to do the markers on tape on your phone, I'm not so sure. I don't know what the forensics it's actually, experts that, would say. That whole scene is actually pulled right from the book. And I'm really, because I thought for me, it was one of the coolest things in the book, uh, the way they play it out and they go through how she does it and stuff. And, and in the book, Ralph is much more enthusiastic. He doesn't believe after that point, but he is impressed. He is audibly impressed with her skills. And that sates him to having this wackadoo in his house is that her forensic ability, her ability to do police shit, impresses him enough to keep his mouth shut a little bit longer. You don't get that same kind of reaction here. He's much, he's still much more standoffish, even though, like you said, and I think you make a great point, she shuts him up by doing his police work in his own house and uh, shows him that he dropped the ball a bit. What did you guys think about her idea that the goo man is projecting? It doesn't leave weight on the carpet because a hologram doesn't weigh anything. And the idea that he's shedding his skin so he has to act through these projections. Did that seem too far out for you guys? Or did it go along with what we know so far, at least through what we know from what Holly has learned so far? It made me really happy that they brought this up because it was something we talked about in the last 
episode of our podcast, which was that he can take several forms. And that was something we talked about, like the whooshing or the getting into you on a cellular level and bubbling up on your neck or being a human, but with that slouchy face or being a human that you recognize. It was a big question mark last week for me of like, how many different forms can he take? And this was one more form as far as I was concerned, being able to project as a hologram absolutely rings true to me. Did you guys believe it or not believe it? I think everything is on the table as far as what his abilities are at this point. We shouldn't necessarily feel like he's confined the same way that he was in the book or like any other monster. The, the I mean, the, the whole scene with Jack uh, tells us that, that this, this version of the outsider can do Stuff that we can't account for as book readers. So, so we're out of the game. We're the same as everybody else watching this. And according to that, that thing can show up in your mind, look like people that are dead, and it doesn't even need to take physical form to beat the shit out of you. That scene with Jack was so important in terms of driving home the idea that he can come in the form of someone you love and that that person could talk to you because I was unsure when we were on the bus if Tracy was coming as the goo man or if Tracy was coming as Tracy as like a good omen, right? And when you saw clearly goo man coming as his mom, a familiar figure, the very next sentence out of my mouth, the second that that mom started talking was, does that mean that the goo man came as Derek? If he comes to you as a familiar person who even Jack said, why did you have to pick her? Why couldn't you pick someone else? It was clear he chooses somebody that is your weak spot, someone who would get through to you. So that pretty much solidified for me that Derek was not ever Derek, that that was definitely Goo Man hologram. I think for me, between the Derek vision last week, which I think we had a question mark because it was unclear who it was, but you know we did have the evidence of the of the Goo Man inside Tamika's house. But I think with the Tracy sighting at the beginning of the episode and then, you know, Jackie boy, you know, Jack's mom at the end here, I think you have to assume unless it's obvious, unless we're told otherwise, I think the assumption has to be it's the goo man spreading his warnings around at this point. It, it seems to be his go to power is making these visions happen. The the question mark for me about whether or not Derek was goo man or not. It's just that the message was off message, <laughs> that the message was tailored for Ralph as Derek's dad rather than Ralph, a detective in the Peterson murder. See, I don't I disagree with you on that in terms of what the message was. He did say, let me go. But we have already said that the reason why he's following up on this case is because if it was Derek, he would want to know the answers. And so I think in a lot of ways if he can compel him through the Derek storyline to say, let me go heal from me. If he didn't have that void, that hurt, he wouldn't be so compelled to continue to look at the Frankie Peterson case in the same way. He's only doing it because he has these unresolved feelings about his son. So to me, I think that that was just a clever way of pushing his buttons. He knows he can't come at Ralph in the same way. For whatever reason, I don't know why he can't just be as blunt as he is with Jeannie and with Jessa and with, you know, the rest of the and with Jack. I don't I don't know why he can't be so blunt, but he seems to need more. I love that you asked that, though, because Holly asks that same question. That's like the final question I think that they have in this episode she says the goo man was actively trying to stop me from getting here. She brings up the bus incident. 
she asks where Tamika is. What is preventing her from being there? You know, and Ralph has the answer about the baby. But that's not really the answer, probably, why Tamika's not there. It's because of what Tamika went through last week with the vision of the baby disappearing. I, I think that's as good a reason as any. And Holly, you know, she says, I would think that he was trying to stop you the most. You are the one. So what does he said to you? Well, he sent Jeannie to tell me to stop. He, he sent a mission, a message to Jessa to tell me to stop. And then he presented, and then Ralph tells her that he presented Derek, or that he had a vision of Derek. But he insists that that was not the goo man, that it was real Derek. Well, we should clarify that a little bit, because what she asks him is, it seems like he's coming to people in their dreams. Have you had any unusual dreams? And he brings up the Derek thing, but he's very clear that this was not related to the goo man. This was just my dream. So he's not equating Jeannie or Jessa or even giving them any validity. Right. I don't remember in that conversation him bringing them up and saying, No, it was, oh, no, she does. Know. It was mm-hmm. the, the discussion is his discussion. Uh, it's her discussion of that the goo man is actively trying to stop this from going forward, their investigation from going forward. She brings up the bus. Then she says, He's trying to, probably trying to stop everyone. And she brings up, Why wasn't the other detective there today? I thought, I figured she would be since Jack was there. And he says, that's Tamika. Oh, she wasn't there. That's obvious because she's got a newborn baby at home. And Holly lets it go. She doesn't question it any further. But we know what Tamika went through last week. And then then she asks him, well, what have, have you had any visions? Have you seen anything? Because she's talking about how the goo man seems to be going after everyone and visiting everyone in some way. But she hadn't yet heard from Ralph, uh, the person she would think the goo man would go after the most. And that's how it comes out. It ends up, they ends up talking about the vision with Derek. But you're right, because of where his mindset is, he is talking about the Derek vision, but says several times that it wasn't the goo man. It wasn't that. But I, I don't know that Holly is going to believe that, though. What did you guys think about everyone else's reaction to Holly's explanation? Howie, Alec? I was glad that she found a potential ally in at least a couple of the men, Yoon and Alec is who I who I mean. Howie, I don't know. I was expecting him to be a little more open-minded because this is all trying to exonerate and make things easier for the for the Maitlands. Even though it's far-fetched, even though it's quite a bit out there, it's as good as anything that they've got so far. So yeah, I I thought Howie was disappointing, but I was glad to see Alec and Yoon were at least potential allies. You and I expected to believe her because he jumps on board so quickly and he's got the cultural background for it. Uh, I was happily surprised that Alec uh, seemed open to it because I expected him to be as a former law guy like Ralph um, or former cop rather. Uh, like Ralph, I expected him to be more f- just the facts ma'am about it. So that was a happy surprise. Howie didn't surprise me because, you know, he's a jaded lawyer. You know, this is a guy who professionally has to believe liars and defend them with a straight face. So, you know, my, my idea about especially defense lawyers in general is that they believe nothing, which is allow, which is what allows them to do their jobs. So I think his reaction was pretty, pretty spot on that he was so Ralph-like in his belief. I think additionally, when Glory has her reaction, he is, you know, quick to be the surrogate Terry and, you know, rush to her side and be like, well, this has upset her so much. This is bullshit. What did you guys think of the intercut scene? Because this is not a device that the show has used a lot, but it's used a little bit. The intercut montage of 
Jack getting the shit kicked out of him by the vision of his mother. And then at some point, and then later on, she disappears completely and he's just getting the shit kicked out of him like he did in the woods. Intercut with Glory purging Terry's stuff and dumping it all in the hallway, uh, which we talked about earlier. Was there any significance for you the way they montage those two things back and forth together? It seemed very on purpose the way they cut those scenes in, in between each other. So I was curious if you guys took any meaning away from that. I completely did. I think that it's that message that the goo man is getting to them. It's because of the things that are going on that are unexplainable that is driving Glory to lose her mind and start sifting through all the drawers. And then, you know, you can't see what's going on with Jack visually all the time, but we know it's in his brain and it's infected him and is tormenting him. So I think that they were different versions of how he's tormenting these different people all around the case. So I, I think I think we're getting to pretty much the end, the very end of the episode. Last thing to talk about, you know, the goo man giveth and the goo man taketh away. Uh, when Jack wakes up the next morning and his neck is as bad as it has ever been, he knows he really has to step up his stop Holly game. So let's talk about that final scene where he's going to call her. He calls her to take her out to the barn. Can I ask you guys a question before we quite get to there? Sure. What about the fact that he sees stop her in the bathroom? He sees stop her on his hands and he doesn't do anything during those points. Like he didn't have to drive her from the diner directly to the meeting. It goes from that scene in the bathroom to them basically being in the meeting. Why do you think that Jack isn't compelled at that point to do something more to stop her? I don't know what. I don't have any big fat ideas on how Jack exactly keeps her from the situation. But why aren't those moments enough, do you guys think? Well, he's still trying to come out of this with like his life intact, I think. Yeah, uh, that was my thought, too. He can't just shoot her. You know, he has to be able to do this in a way, like Paul said, like he's going to be able to come out of it. And she says to him, she drops, the only personal piece of information she drops is that they're not going to believe what I have to say tomorrow uh, or later uh, at the meeting. That that struck me as he thought maybe he could bide his time to see what cockamamie thing she came out with at the meeting, because maybe that would stop her. You know, it seemed like he was using a little bit of cop instinct to let the process play out, to, to wait for his spot. Yeah, that's all I got. Is is just that he that I th- he can reach a point where he it'll be just go for broke. It doesn't matter how it turns out, kind of thing. Just as long as uh, I do this one thing, then maybe the torment will stop. But he's not to that point yet. Right. That so makes I, sense. I'm I'm satisfied by that. that yeah, because at the because at the end of the meeting, obviously she doesn't get glory. She doesn't have Howie. She doesn't have Ralph. But she doesn't lose everyone with her story. So he gets to stop her across. He gets Jack gets to stop her across his knuckles, um, which reminded me of Harry Potter and uh, Dolores Umbridge. <laughs> you know, like you shall not tell eyes. That, that was a real vibe I got there. But that's Jack's warning that you have not done enough. You have not stopped her. But at that point, though, she's in Jack's protection. You know, she's literally in his car and then in his house. So Jack has to wait till the next morning and take his ass whooping before he can strike at her again. What did you guys think about the mom scene? Were you guys freaked out at all? What about all the blood everywhere and and the actual real violence that happened in those scenes? This is one area of characterization where the book outstrips the show in that his mom is in his head like a lot, particularly the way that she died, if I recall. The stuff on his neck that the outsider gives him the outsider knows from his mom that Jack is scared to death of cancer. And so he tells him, I've given you cancer on your neck and I can make it worse or I can make it go away. 
And so he's got this constant reminder of his mom on his neck. And and when she and she appears to him several times and she is not the clothed just angry curb stomping mom that we see tonight. She's more of like a rotting corpse, late stage, horrible cancer vision, uh, a much more gruesome reminder of the ravages of cancer vision of his mother than just like a real pissed off Irish mom who's, you know, willing to beat the shit out of her husband uh, a little bit. So <laughs> why do you guys think that they made that change from the book? Why do you think that they chose to have her be, healthy looking intact everything as opposed to more of a corpse well it's cheaper uh, <laughs> but um that's not usually an hbo concern i mean my thought was because they still have four more hours that they have to space out so they could get worse as they go along yeah you know this you know, this is the first time we've seen the mom and she made a hell of an entrance but my guess is that jack is not going to uh his overall mental state is not going to improve over the final uh, seven, eight, nine, and ten episodes of the season. You know, so I, I expect as he mentally deteriorates under, you know, I, I don't think Holly's going to die. I mean, we haven't seen the next episodes, but she seems to be a pretty central character. So my guess is she's going to have to survive somehow, whatever happens next week, wherever he's taking her, you know, out to the barn or whatever. So Jack's time, I, I, I imagine, has to deteriorate more, and I imagine where we may get a more deteriorated mother. To, to go along with that, you know, a little symbiotic degradation. That, that would be that my makes guess. sense. That totally makes sense. And, and like allows us to have like this sort of like layered horror of the mom instead of just seeing it in the grossest form the first time we see her. What's grosser than, uh, than your mom curb stomping your face? A, a corpse ridden mom curb stomping your face and beating the uh-huh. shit out of you. You know, for me, The scariest part of the episode actually had no violence in it. It was really the menacing, the way he puts, Jack puts his hand on Holly's hand on the steering wheel at the end of the episode. You know, when she, she's now seen his neck, she's making connections. She tells him, oh, I have to go back to Ralph's house. I forgot something. And he says to her, you know, it'll wait. Did you guys jump a little bit when he puts his hand on her to steer the car? What what was your takeaway of the final? Super icky. That's got to be every person's nightmares have a bigger person who you don't know lay a hand on you and direct you and I, he didn't just like lay his hand on her steering hand as a suggestion of don't turn the wheel he actually steered for a few more seconds before he let go oh yeah we get that overshot of the car to see what he does uh i, I don't think that was just in, i don't think that was accidental or coincidental uh filmmaking right. i think I think I think we get that overshot of the car to see it make a radical. We're gonna go left. Oh no no, we're going right. Turn and I, I definitely think you're right. That's his hand on the wheel. That moment played out so intelligently. I loved that they had Jack put on that weirdo makeup and then how smooth that she was able to reach back and get the wipes and say, you know what, you'd look a lot better with these, and then purposely knock them to the floor so that he'd lean forward and so that she'd see his neck, and that completely validated again all the time we spent with Tracy and looking at his neck and having her be able to have had the picture to then see it because otherwise there would be no reason why she would have ever gotten to this conclusion had we not spent that time with Bedmaker. So I felt like, okay, these are where the puzzle pieces are. Like you can hear the clicking happening. And oh my God, I would have shit my pants if he grabbed the wheel. And I really thought hard about 
what would I do? I think in any other movie or show I've ever seen, your only option is to crash the car. No, like you definitely don't go where they say you're going to you. They want you to go. As Oprah tells you, you fight like hell. You don't go to the the second location. Like if you are going to take a stand, you take a stand right where they're going to take you. Don't go along with them because wherever they're going to take you, they are going to have the upper hand in such a serious way. You will have no chance. So if it's me, I'm never getting to the barn. I don't care if I have to drive us off the road and kill us both, but I'm not going to the barn because whatever you're going to do to me there is going to be far worse than what I'm going to (laughs) do. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end, though, I think, because I think uh, whatever happens next week, I imagine if we don't pick right up with that, it's going to be something that we learn what happens really, uh, really soon thereafter in the beginning of next week's episode. So, well, you guys want to take any predictions on what happens next week? Let me ask you guys real quick. Did you guys enjoy this episode? I know the last episode you guys had a real hard time with. You felt like there was a lot of spinning wheels and it wasn't you didn't feel like it had a lot of good energy or anything. What did you guys think about this week? For me, I thought. This was a good step forward. I'm still perturbed with with R- Ralph's lack of forward motion, but everything else is moving forward. I think he's in, and he will catch up. Your lack of faith, exactly. <laughs> right. He he finds he'll. We need to find new ways to motivate him. But yeah, it's uh, just Ralph. But the rest of it, I I, I liked. Uh, yeah, I I think this is probably my second favorite episode of the season. This is what I want. I wanted them all back in the room. I wanted to be able to start connecting dots, you know, because as as they do that, the lore and the and the mythology spills out. It goes deeper, and that's what I want. You know, that's what I want in my show. In a show like this, I want to be able to lo- get lost in the why is this like this? How does this work? You know, what is happening here? And I think I think this was a great step forward in that. What about you, Caroline? I liked it a lot. I. Th- felt like those puzzle pieces clicking and feeling like we did get information in the last episode that was helpful in this episode that felt good and like a good payoff for how much time we had to spend thinking about other cases and other situations and how this was actually going to move us forward. I also really enjoyed the small moments like Yoon actually sitting there and watching Claude was like such a freaking relief. I mean, that just felt like, oh, thank God, someone is moving forward on this case in a way that Holly can think whatever she wants, but she doesn't have the authority to do anything where Yoon does. He can actually stop something from happening and Holly can just warn. I mean, honestly, at this point, Ralph can't even do anything, not legally, not really. You know, because he's he still has to get past his therapist and his big breakthrough. So Yoon really is the only one on the side of the angels right now who actually can do something about anything. But as far as predictions into next week, we obviously, like you've mentioned, we have what looks like it's going to be a meeting at the barn, but it may not ever get to the barn. She is driving the car. He can reach over all he wants, but a lot can go wrong with uh you know, driving and riding in a car that, that the driver can cause regardless of what a passenger yeah, I mean, wants to have. I agree. Yeah. To, to Caroline's uh, point, you know, he may have control of the wheel, but she still has control of the gas and the brake, you know, unless he slides over the gear ship, you know, into her lap kind of thing. So ho- hopefully she doesn't let it get too far to the barn because I can't see that ending well no. for anyone. Dude, if that happens, though, if he starts sliding over, I'm unlocking the door. I'm tucking and rolling. I'm not going. I'm not going to the second location. Like, no way. (laughs) That is where the most horrific things happen. So I'm not going. I don't care. I will take my chances rolling out of a moving car um, as opposed to going wherever he has some shit set up waiting for me. No. 
not where I'm going next. That's my hope is that she somehow deters them. But I know we can't, right? In order for the story to move forward, we pretty much have to go to his lair, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if we have to go to his lair yet. I'm not convinced that she makes it all the way to the barn. I, my, my prediction is that she does do a gas it into some kind of oncoming traffic. You know, you have to check. Does she have her seatbelt on? I think if she has her seatbelt on, you know, I think that I think we're going to get a <laughs> I don't think she makes it to the lair just yet. I agree. That's where we wind up, but not not I don't think t- next week. OK, so do you think that Jack's outlived his usefulness then? Because, I mean, if she crashes the car or whatever and somehow manages to get away, the jig is up on Jack. So how what would be the repercussions? Well, Jack would uh, what the, the, the mode that Jack is in right now of trying to play it real cool and and maybe get out of this thing with his life intact. It could shift into, you know, the thing is making your neck just burn or it's continuing to kick the shit out of you. And the only way to stop it is to stop Holly. And so all of a sudden caution gets thrown out the window in in favor of expediency. That just means going to her house and shooting her or whatever the equivalent would be. Yeah. Okay, I don't, so then I don't, he's like a fugitive type situation, like just like a whatever. He just has to go ape shit. There's no more like trying to stay under the mm-hmm. radar. That's my guess. Yeah. I don't think the goo man doesn't give a shit about whether or not Jack has the ability to continue having the life that he's had up to no. now. The goo man just wants the goo man's. The goo man wants what the goo man wants, and I don't think you know Jack. You know Jack may want a lot of things, but the goo man doesn't really care about that, and he's going to get what he wants. And if it requires him becoming a rogue fugitive to to finish off Holly or Ralph or whatever it is, that's what the goo man's going to get. You guys have described as the goo man, um, at least in the book, and and I. I'm unsure of him in this one as being so primitive and not really having a plan. I'm unsure that he's willing to dispense of Jack or just act like he doesn't care what Jack wants because he seems to need him and he seems to have to take some time to actually be able to create this as we've been lovingly call him the like the goo man's bitch then he would have to find someone else which would be a problem he needs the, like feet on the ground so while he might not give a shit about whether he's ruining jack's life he does need a, a healthy intact can walk person to continue to you're saying it's fitting. tough to replace a good bitch. so uh yeah i am and 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 we've kind of seen that right like that's sort of what the story has told us is that it's actually difficult to get into people's heads and actually successfully control them he's been successful and not successful so if you already have your hooks in someone i mean why wouldn't he just straight up kill him if you didn't give a shit about keeping him going Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like i don't i don't see him letting him off the hook with this at any point no matter what um and he still has to be a viable bad guy so this is going to get really dicey do you guys think that claude and and the following um the following yoon will that perhaps take the two of them closer to the barn or is there any reason to converge on the barn coming soon I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I know, I, I, again, I know what happens in the book, uh, you know, but that doesn't, that doesn't help out this present situation. You know, what they set up with the, the Jack and the Holly thing is, is new. This is a new thing. So I, the book doesn't really help with the Claude stuff in that case. Um, I don't see why Claude, I don't see why Claude would be going out there. Do you know who does have a reason to go out there? 
he glory. doesn't. No. Uh, yes, yeah, glory her husband's would. grave is sure. there. And so by changing the location of the grave from the book to the story, she has a reason to be out there. And that could be a game changer, I think. Because maybe Jeannie goes out with Glory out there. And now you've got three women, and this is 2020, boys. Who's the hero of the story? <laughs> yeah, but... Three definitely. women? It, the interesting wrinkle would be there. She's going out to the grave. It'll probably be with her daughters to maybe as a mea culpa for the stink eye that she earned for... I don't you know. know. They didn't go the last time. Well, So when they, she was she, out there, but she Jeannie also, did. Yeah, but she also you know piled all of her dad's clothes in the hallway. So... You know, dr- I'm dramatically. saying 2020 endings equal changing the story from I don't and I don't know who wins in the book. I don't know if it's men and don't tell us all, but I don't know if it's men that save the day or not. But having three women converge and somehow thwart evil feels on brand. I guess we'll have to find out next week. Yes. Thanks you guys for listening. This is Caroline with Daily Review. This is Paul from Daily Review. And this is Mike from Pop Culture Review. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you. 